Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast. We apply quality filters to all the companies we're looking at, and that gives us a good mix of high-quality businesses, great businesses, well-managed businesses, you know, long-term winners, if you like. But then we also then rank them from one to five in terms of what we think is the best value. So our aim is not to build a, you know, an old dusty portfolio of bombed-out stocks that head down over time and occasionally go up. We want to build a live portfolio of good quality companies, growing companies with great businesses. G'day and welcome back to Equity ASA, brought to you by Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today, I'm pleased to welcome James Holt, CIMA Director, Investment Solutions, Perpetual Limited. Hello, James. Hi, Phil. How are you? Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Perpetual Limited, ASX code PPT, is a diversified financial services company which has been serving clients since 1886. It's a long time, James. You haven't been there that long, though, have you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I can't, can't claim to have been around that long. <laughs> James leads a team of two investment solution specialists and an investment writer to provide commentary, analysis and technical investment support to stockbrokers, financial advisors and investors in perpetual investments funds. So let's start talking about the inflation megatrend, which seems to be making a lot of the news lately. Where are we at the moment in your view and where do you see it headed? And before we start on this answer, we should date stamp this that we're recording on May 11th, 2022, because markets are so volatile at the moment. Oh, look, it's a great point, Phil. I mean, markets are just amazing. I have to do some presentations soon and um, it's a case of uh, they change overnight. You know, they often don't change uh, that frequently. So, yeah, look, it is a critical one in terms of inflation. And I think people have kind of got their heads stuck in, no, it's only transitory, or no, it's it's definitely here for longer. And to an extent, they've got to probably be mindful of the fact that it's a bit of both. Clearly, we do recognise that there is some transitory inflation. So, for example, the port linkages and things like that, disruptions to transport and whatever. They, all those things will eventually be resolved. There's no doubt about that. But it's kind of these more structural inflationary factors that we are concerned about. So things like um, just the fact that the trade war and increasing kind of Cold War mentality, if you like, is starting to fray those relationships that have really kept inflation down for a long period of time. And, you know, we have been through periods before in history where sort of 
you know, globalization falls apart, you know, and, and that happened kind of in the 19th century, but it also happened between 1914 and 1945, so 31-year period. People probably thought that, you know, it wouldn't last that long. We can get back together again after the war and, and so on. But in fact, it went on right through the 20s and 30s and um, protectionism rose, et cetera. And then there's also things like we think, you know, the fact that the really big change in policy implementation in the last 15 years. So at first QE in 2007, 8, 9, very different from the QE we do today, which is more about giving money to people rather than giving it to banks. Geopolitics, demographics, decarbonisation, all these things, if you look at them in detail, they're sort of adding a bit of inflation at the margins. So we don't, we're not necessarily necessarily saying, you know, we're facing a 1970 scenario of sort of up to 15% inflation. I mean, anything could happen, who knows? But the more we look at it, the more we realise there's these little factors that add maybe half a percent per annum. So instead of the you know one to two percent inflation we've had for a long period of time, and everyone took it for granted and assumed it would be here forever, we're thinking about maybe all these things are sort of adding up to maybe more like three to four percent inflation going forward. And do you see the um, central banks around the world being able to keep this under control? Yes, they're certainly going to try. At first, the central banks they were very much in the transitory camp, and we heard a lot from. You know, the Fed talking about the fact that inflation would return to normal. They assumed that all the usual rules, globalisation and so forth applied. They were certainly saying that at the same time as they were kind of justifying, if you like, um, these very big programs to keep the economy afloat. And let's make no mistake, they did a brilliant job in terms of learning the lessons of the GFC, deploying capital very quickly, putting it in the right places. And we got a tremendous recovery from COVID that probably exceeded everyone's wildest imaginations. Of course, the penalty for that then is this inflation on the other side. And it's taken some time for the central banks to shift from that preventing deflation mentality and saving the world to, hang on, maybe we do have an inflation problem here. And the key thing is, Phil, the longer you leave inflation in the system, the more you create inflation expectations. That's certainly the lesson of the 70s where the problem was as soon as you have 3 to 4% inflation and people expect that they try and make wage claims and catch up, and next thing you know, inflation is 5 or 6% and people start to expect that. So they expect higher and higher levels of inflation becomes a bit of a vicious wage price cycle. And this is what the central banks are trying to prevent. They've realised you know, in hindsight that a decade is really five two-year periods where you just you try and manage the two years and then the next two years and the next two years and next thing you know you've lost control of things and so central banks are very focused on making sure that they can nip this in the bud it will take a lot of courage to do that and i think the lesson of history really here and we're talking primarily about the fed is that soft landings are pretty rare <laughs> that is you know being able to raise rates and and bring the economy under control you know dampen inflation and actually get there without causing a recession only happens about 25% of the time. 75% of the time you do get a recession. So the odds are against them, but you know they're going to give it a crack. I think they'll keep a very keen eye on, on employment and to see as soon as the employment data starts to soften, you might see central banks back off. And that's partly why you get this impression that the central banks are tightening very quickly this year. But in 2023, they could well be loosening. But that does not mean necessarily the inflation problem, even if it falls, will go away. If we look again at the 70s, and again, not that you'd be expecting that, but it wasn't so much one inflation, it was a series of inflation. So we had the first inflation in the 60s, and then another one came back in the early 70s and the mid-70s. The first two were really caused by policy 
too much spending, which is kind of feels like the era we're in now. Again, if things roll over, again, stimulus may come out, it may go straight to inflation, and, and we're sort of stuck in this mode of having spent the last 30, 40 years taking it for granted that inflation was low to one where, again, like policymakers before the 80s, were trying to battle and keep inflation, the inflation journey back in the bottle. And we could be, for a whole variety of reasons, sort of facing a similar sort of trend. You use the word courage. Is that courage in the face of possible recession or courage as in standing up to political masters as well? All of the above, Phil. And also, I think the other interesting thing with markets these days is that I think there's probably three levels of it. There's standing up to masters. And if you look back in the 60s when the Fed was trying to tighten at the end of the 1960s, and I believe history rhymes a lot. Sometimes it repeats, but it often rhymes a lot. That the Fed then was having trouble trying to implement policy without political interference because the administration in the US was trying to implement a sort of anti-poverty package, which was you know a great thing to do, but it also created the sort of issues we're seeing again today, inflation in the system. And the Fed tried to resist that, but then they couldn't. And then there was sort of interference and so forth as well. And the Fed sort of kind of lost its way for a long time until another Fed chairman came along now. And Powell, I think, is doing an amazing job in the circumstances to try and, you know, balance all these things together. There's the fear of the courage in terms of the recession. And the last one I'd add as well to that, Phil, is the courage in terms of slaying the bull market. Because the question has become, I think in economics the last 20, 30 years, it's very interesting. We've had this kind of financialization of economics. So it's not just about the jobs and the, the infrastructure and the things you build, the physical economy, but trying to keep the markets at reasonably high levels, that sort of financial interest, the theory being that, of course, the wealth effect from higher financial markets helps the economy as well. So what you may have to choose between is, do I fix the economy and get inflation under control, but at the risk of kind of really doing significant damage to the financial system or, you know, equity markets and things like that. We've seen what's happened with bonds already. And of course, Wall Street won't be happy, but it seems like it's very difficult to make Wall Street and Main Street, as they call it in America, happy at the same time, you know, and uh, you may have to choose between those two as well. So give us an overview, James, of the perpetual investing approach. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, we're value-oriented, but I wouldn't call ourselves deep value. We are interested in great growing companies as much as anyone else. But I guess the way we approach it is that we have two elements to our process. The first is that we apply quality filters to all the companies we're looking at. And that gives us a, a good mix of high quality businesses, great businesses, well-managed businesses, you know, long-term winners, if you like. But then we also then rank them from one to five in terms of what we think is the best value. So our aim is not to build a, you know, an old dusty portfolio of bombed out stocks that head down over time and occasionally go up. We want to build a, a live portfolio of good quality companies, growing companies with great businesses. We want to buy them at the right price. And so the quality filters we use, first of all, are you know, sound management, making sure that the management team are going to be the people who do the right thing at the right time. Quality business, and that by that we mean a quality business well positioned in an industry, an industry that's doing well, you know, maybe the one or two number one player or the best player in that market. It's got to have recurring earnings. And we think that's going to become more and more important. Again, it hasn't been important for the last five years, you know, Phil, because, um, you know, you look at some of the companies that have absolutely zoomed to the moon. They haven't made money or they won't make money for some time. Some have even come to market saying that we may never make money, which makes you wonder what the point of being in business is in the first place, right? But that has happened. And then the last one is also conservative debt. So here we we look at any company that has got to at least earn three times its interest bill. 
And we tend to find that over time has ensured that the portfolios are not vulnerable to a big downturn, a bit like what we're seeing right now. And of course, as we know, I mean, we talked a bit earlier about Perpetual's origins. You know, we started in the 1880s as a trustee business. So people gave us their money while they headed over to the UK, went home to the UK to do business. So it was all built on trust and our investment business, which sort of came out of that, you know, about 50, 60 years ago was built on the idea of, again, trustee origins, looking after people, you know, widows and orphans was the name of our first fund, you know, so people who couldn't afford to lose their money. They had one allocation of capital gifted to them or whatever, earned over life. They couldn't go back in the market and earn more. So we had to keep that capital growing for them over time, but not taking too much risk. So again, that's critical for us in terms of, you know, there's no point winning nine years out of 10 and then going bankrupt in the 10th year. For us, we want to make sure the capital lasts as long as possible and uh, can spin off money for those investors for an extended period of time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So speaking to you, and it seems that you do take a, a very historical view of events in the markets. You know, we've talked about all the way back to the 1880s and the 1970s and um, the early 2000s. So I would presume then that your investing approach does take into account these semi-regular market ups and downs and volatility. Would that be correct to say? Absolutely, yes. Yes, yeah, certainly. So look, the thing with any sort of style approach, if you know your growth or value, you're going to have periods where you're not going to perform well. It's really, really hard to have convictions and have a clear sense of how things go over time without without having some sort of belief system to bolt your investment philosophy to. I've, I've very rarely met anyone who's not able to do that. So yeah, for us, it's definitely value orientation, but not value obsessed. That's this kind of ability to have great quality businesses that should do well over time, but pick them at the right time, have a a portfolio that's not the market. You don't want to be the market. And I guess the key for us is the proof for us over time is that we not only outperform the market, and we've got endless data to show all of our portfolios over time have beaten the market handily. We don't outperform every year. During the last five years, for example, it's been a bit of a struggle. In the lead up to the dot-com bust in the 1990s, it was a struggle for us. Just before the GFC, we didn't buy into all those racy companies that were ever promising and could never deliver. We just didn't buy them. And the, the short-term penalty is that the 
you know, those companies went ahead of us, we underperformed slightly. But of course, we get it all back in the long term. So we outperform the long term. But critically, we do it with less risk than the market. So if you think about it, most of the time, if you're looking at 300 companies, you're only picking 20 or 30. Yes, you might outperform over time, but you probably do so with greater volatility. But one thing we've done over time is we outperform the market and with less volatility. So there's two sources of value add, if you like, for clients over time, less volatility plus also the long-term value add, which is really, I think, the secret source of perpetual that's been built in there over time. So what sort of stocks and sectors are you looking at at the moment? Look, for us at the moment, we've been very, you know, significantly invested in things like, uh, just given the inflation environment, things like food and energy. So we think, you know, inflation persists. So think about companies like, uh, you know, the Santos's of the world. We think that's a, a great business. Usually we'll, we'll be looking at companies that are not necessarily greatly loved at this point in time. So Santos, certainly one of those. Infotech, Pivot, another one as well. So those sort of food and energy plays we think do well over time. There's also, we think, you know, decarbonisation is certainly going to occur, I think. And look, that's actually a good thing for the planet without a shadow of a doubt. One thing we're mindful of, though, is that it will cost money and will probably add to inflation as well, which is why I sort of cited that as a an inflation theme at the beginning. But it does mean that companies like, um, you know, Oz Minerals and Aluka, uh, Javois, which very few people have heard of, they're all listed here in Australia, but they're great businesses. They're in nickel and copper and um, various other commodities, rare earths they're going into in the case of Aluka. Javois has got cobalt as well. So all of these components are required for the new green economy. So as we build electric cars, electric vehicles are here and they're, they're not going to go away and we electrify the system. Those components will be in much, much more demand over time to um, to put those components into vehicles and other things. So the demand for that structurally is very strong for a long period of time. And also we think business models that do well in rising inflation environments, we've already seen rising rates has really killed the tech sector in, in the United States and even here in Australia, look at the zips of the world and any company that kind of was it, we call them long duration stocks. They're like very long duration bonds. You know, they've got growth potential in, on, in the never, never one day, which could definitely occur. But of course, if you price too much of that in too quickly, when rates rise and people have an alternative to invest into, those stocks pretty quickly come down to earth. But there are other stocks that do better as rates rise, particularly, you know, the insurers, so IAG, for example, um, is a very unloved stock right now. And look, it's a great business. We do like a company which is, you know, trading at pretty much the low end of its historic range. You know, it often trades between $4 and $8. It's closer to $4 at the moment. We can all see the rain falling around us, you know, because of La Nina, but La Nina always comes to an end. And the funny thing about insurance companies is that during the rain, insurance claims go through the roof. That's not a surprise. But when the rain stops, insurance claims tend to fall. But you, then you get earnings go up. And that's when people, again, people always extrapolate the bad news at the bottom and they extrapolate the good news at the top. And right now we're buying into the over-pessimism, if you like, about a company like IAG with the aim of uh, selling into the over-optimism that'll undoubtedly hit the stock at some point down the track. And then lastly, I'd say we've also investing in companies that are offering experience. So if you think about the last two years, you know, everyone's either bought a new house or they've renovated or they've bought three couches or they've redone the kitchen. Everyone's tried to really feather their nests, you know, improve their living space as much as they possibly can. But I think now, and anyone who tried to get a flight the last two months will, will certainly relate to this, 
everyone just wants to get on a jet and go somewhere, you know, or everyone wants to go back to the cinemas or they want to do something experiential rather than necessarily physical because they've done that to death in the past uh, two years while we've all been uh, locked down. Okay, so let's talk about the sectors and stocks that you're avoiding at the moment. Yeah, sure. So look, for us very much, we still remain very sceptical of these concept stocks, if you know what I mean. So they might have a fantastic idea. And look, part of capitalism, the whole purpose of the system is to you know, invent the things we didn't know we realized, you know, <laughs> necessity is the mother of invention. So usually what happens with a new sector or business is that a lot of capital will pour into it, but it's almost like venture capital in a way, you know, so a lot of money pours in, you know, I think many, many decades ago, there were a hundred car makers at one point, they all consolidated down to about two or three. Some were bought out, some merged, some went broke. And again, it often becomes very hard to price the opportunity. So the market's usually up and down and very volatile. I think that's what we've seen with a lot of those concept stocks. So you think about the zips of the world, the buy now, pay later space, you know, it makes a lot of sense in some respects. Skeptics would say, well, is it really new? Is it just, you know, lay by electronically? And, and of course, there was tremendous enthusiasm for those companies early on. Afterpay did go up and down a lot though, which tells you a lot about how the market didn't know what the value should be. It got bought out. They sold it at a great time <laughs> in one respect. But of course, Square now is is also slumping quite a lot in sympathy with the rest of the tech sell-off globally. So that's certainly one example. Zip's obviously down about 90%. So it's, again, these companies which we call concept stocks where we just can't get a handle on the blue sky future. We think there's too much capital that's poured into the sector. It's all got a bit of rational and, you know, it's in the too hard basket or, you know, it's it's actively a stock that will, will undoubtedly decline at some point in time. And the other ones also companies that are vulnerable to rising rates. So we just are conscious that if you look globally, what's happened is the, the small cap stocks have taken the big hit first, whether we're looking at the US or looking at Australia. You know, if you think about the small caps here, again, things like the zips and so forth, the world, but also the big caps are still fairly lofty. So CSL, look, we've got a bit of a conflict with CSL because we actually love the company. We think it's a wonderful company, a brilliant company, but it's also a 35 times company and it's huge. And the growth in the earnings are not really that of a company which should be necessarily on 35 times. And to give you a case in point, we often have global fund managers who come to Australia and say, oh, in the US or Europe, that would be a 15 times company. But here at the 35 times, why is it? Well, maybe it's the only sort of high quality healthcare company people can buy, so they bid it up. But either way, it's not a rationale for that valuation to be as high as it is. So we are conscious that those sort of companies could still correct with higher rates, transurban, probably in a similar sort of position. And the other ones I'd say are, you know, companies that may have rising costs but can't necessarily pass it on. So you think about companies with large labour forces where they have to pass on higher wage demands in the next few years and or where the product is saturated. So, you know, think about Ansel, for example, where there's definitely no shortage of rubber gloves in the world because, again, after COVID, what happened is every country in the world invested in their own domestic manufacturing. So whereas Ansel once um, was, you know, in a good position in that industry, now there's an oversupply of those things. And, you know, again, as their costs rise, they get squeezed potentially. And we'd say here domestically as well, a company like um, Domino's also, it's again, it's had great success in many ways, was a big COVID beneficiary and went up, has come down a bit more recently. But again, we think a lot of their costs probably will rise as they face greater inflation in, in times ahead. So again, people are putting a very high valuation on a very small profit margin, if you like. 
So James, if uh, listeners want to find out more about Perpetual, where would we direct them? Absolutely. Well, look, you can come to the Perpetual website, that's for sure. In terms of investors, we've got funds across a whole variety of, of areas, so Australian equities, global equities, we've got ESG, we've got other things as well. And another space as well is we've got a, a series of listed funds. So increasingly, we're looking to provide exchange-traded products that people can invest into. So, so ASX PIC is a very concentrated you know, Australian equity fund, a high-conviction equity portfolio that can put up to 35% into global stocks. We've got the ASX PCI, so PIC and PCI, which is a credit income trust, which invests in floating rate credit and loans. And then we've launched the Ethical SRI Fund, which is an ESG type fund that's under ASX GIVE. And we've given the ticket code give because a portion of the performance fee goes to charity. But again, it follows the same perpetual investment philosophy, except it excludes unethical stocks or has an unethical filter on it, I should say. We also have ASX IDEA, IDEA, which invests in more innovative companies. And coming later this month, we have, ideally, subject to ASX and ASIC approval, we have the ASX GLOB, which is our, the global version, if you like, of our ideas. So again, quality companies at value prices, which people can invest into. James Holt, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure, thank you. Important, please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education and they're not designed to provide financial advice, nor are they a recommendation to buy shares in the companies featured or discussed. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered.